Welcome No Labels, No Limits podcast listeners. Sarah Box here, and I'm happy to have you on another episode of the No Labels, No Limits podcast. Today, our guest is Jana Fulberth. Now, Jana's an interesting woman. She has co-founded two companies, one higher credit and the other analytically. I'm going to ask her to talk to you about both companies because they're a little different. And I will tell you that I first met Jana as part of my professional development when she gave training for HR on data and HR and where they intersect and how important that kind of data is. And what I walked away thinking was not only is she smart and have a good good grasp of data and the power of it, but also that she's able to see things a little bit different. And it seems like the tra- trajectory of her career has been interesting in and of itself. So I asked Jana if she would join us and we'll talk a little bit of business. She's been through different transitions in her career path and has some great insights to share with us. So welcome, Jana. And with that, as a little bit of introduction, tell us a little bit more about where you are right now professionally and your path to get there. Absolutely. And Sarah, uh, just so excited to spend some time with you today and looking forward to sharing my story, sharing some insights, having, having a fun conversation So today, I am president and co-founder of Analytically and another company called Higher Credit. And Analytically and Higher Credit both fit in the uh, sphere of human capital management. So my customers are employers. The people that we work with are HR teams, operations teams, C-suite executives, uh, basically helping employers be better employers, whether it's driving up productivity, driving up employee engagement, driving up profitability. Two businesses, uh, one's analytically, we focus on workforce analytics. So that's where my uh, data nerd side definitely comes out. And higher credit, we focus on processing typically underused tax credits for employers. Uh, One of the tax credits that we focus on helps statistically disadvantaged applicants get uh, basically a second chance at work. So uh, both organizations are very mission-driven, really helping employers create better work experiences for their employees. So just for my listeners, many of whom are in the nonprofit sector or small business owners, when they hear the your client base, when I heard your client base the first time, I thought, well, I wonder if that applies to me as a small business owner or as a previous executive director. And then I thought, of course it does, because you're talking about concepts that actually not only help the business, but also help the people that the business serves. Is that correct? You're you're spot on. I think to some degree, what's happened in the world of software and innovation is it almost feels like innovation has been capped and kept in enterprise. If I'm an enterprise organization, I can have a workforce analytics strategy. If I'm an enterprise organization, then it makes sense to spend the time to actually do the work to process tax credits. Or uh, just in general, it feels like sometimes 
very strategic initiatives are out of reach just by sheer employee count. So that's really at the ethos of what we do here. Not not to make light of what we do around here, but there is a little bit of a, of, of a Robin Hood mentality where, where we're trying to make, and not to say that we don't work with large organizations, but we're trying to make analytics and the power of data more accessible to the masses, not just to the few. Well, I do think that's powerful. I like being mission-driven, number one, so mm-hmm. kudos on that. I think the Robin Hood complex is great because, (laughs) and the one thing I do know is sometimes it's those little changes. So an organization or an independent person, just to think about what their data could mean to them differently than they have, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I think that's what listening to you speak and present on did for me as I listened to stats and having been someone who's managed HR and worked and been over people, I've looked at those numbers and not paid I would say the right kind of attention to them. So I do want to come back and dive into that a little bit. And I may ask you to to look at that in depth with us. But I want to know if you would share with us, first of all, you folks won't be able to see you. So I'm going to tell you when you're looking at, when you're listening to this podcast, Jana's really young. And so it, could you talk to us a little bit about what it was like coming out of college? She, so first of all, she's young. She's pretty small. So she's one of those people that you could look at and go, oh, what an interesting professional, but not understand the role she has in companies and, and her trajectory for getting there. So could you talk what that was like to come out into a kind of a corporate environment and your first job and, and that type of thing? Sure. Absolutely. So I went to college. So I'm here in Indianapolis. I live in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, I went to Butler University. And so one of the great things about being at Butler, and especially at the College of Business, is they require you to do two internships. So very early on in, I'll say my career, but it was really in my education, I was part of large organizations So business, I've I've always been fascinated with business. I was always starting little businesses when I was younger. Um, There was very few times that I was playing house or playing school. It was more playing with the cash register and setting up the grocery store. Uh, So I I think uh, I think I, I, I knew I had a knack for something very early on, but it was that exposure throughout my college years to different types of organizations. So when I was in school, my internships ranged from pretty large organizations, uh, Delta Fawcett, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Northwestern Mutual, and because I always thought that I was going to be a big company gal, you know, I, I, I thought I, I, my, my dream job was being the VP of marketing for consumer brand. And I had uh, no idea what was coming for me. And, uh, and honestly, if you if you look at the uh, my short career, you can kind of connect the dots with the mentors that I've had throughout through, along the way. And I I met a great mentor while I was in the College of Business at Butler. And very close to my graduation date, he asked me what I knew about private sources of capital and entrepreneurship. So I think he kind of had a sense that uh, going the big company route would have been fine and I would have had a great life and a great career, but uh, would I really be fulfilled? And so right out of school, I ended up diving into a private equity-backed healthcare company, moved cross-country, didn't know a soul, 
lived in Scottsdale, Arizona for a number of years and uh, dove into an industry that's tough. I mean, you're, you're, you're in healthcare, you're 21 years old, you're deep inside the payer system. I mean, heck, I was trying to figure out my benefits plan and my pharmacy formulary, uh, let alone uh, the, this employer that I just joined. But uh, just a, a great opportunity in, in one thing that, that I will always, always, always advocate for is inoculate yourself for stress. Right. Go find the biggest, hairiest, ugliest, most stressful situation that you can be in, but lower the risk. Right. So I'm always trying to balance risk with stress. And so if you can kind of get that risk muscle bigger and bigger and stress muscle bigger and bigger in an area that you have less likelihood of risk of failure. Right. Uh, it really helps you propel forward. So I've I've been fortunate to have a number of mentors along the way that made this, made failing, made trying hard, made, made tackling the big hairy problem okay. And and so right after uh, I was part of the healthcare organization, I knew at that point that I really wanted to run something. Like I really wanted to start something someday. And another great mentor of mine gave me some really sage advice. And he said, hey, look, if you're going to run an organization, you're going to start something, you're really going to need to understand how to sell. And because when it comes to entrepreneurship, you're raising money, you're convincing people typically to leave their corporate jobs and start with you on your new adventure. So I I ended up moving back from Scottsdale to Indianapolis and joining an organization that really has changed the trajectory of my career because I joined to really understand good sales salesmanship or should I say saleswomanship. And it was a payroll company. It was an HR software technology company. And um, what we learned throughout that process of selling, implementing and servicing HR platforms is there were some pretty big gaps that the HR systems couldn't really weren't meant to fill. And we ended up building analytically and higher credit to fill those gaps. So when you think about 21 to today, and I'm 31 today, so it's been, it's been 10 years. When you really think about the, the, the path and the trajectory, I think a huge part of it has to go with being willing to really push myself and, and choose the, the, the path and the, the road less traveled, the harder path. But then more importantly, people, mentors. I've had a, a great group of mentors throughout my entire career that really have encouraged me and uh, kept me on the rails, so to speak. So let's talk a little bit more about mentors because mentorship is powerful. So when you had oh, your, okay. and going back to your first mentor and that you were talking about in college, how smart of him to basically point out to you that you were putting a square peg in a round hole if you mm-hmm. went mainstream corporate without telling you that, right? Just asking you a question to open it. How? But when you think about the mentors, who were they? To, like, who were they to? How did you find them? What kind of relationship did you have with them? Because I think sometimes people wonder, well, how do I get them? What is a mentor? Who is a mentor? How often do you talk to a mentor? What's your relationship with them? Will you give us a little bit on that, Jana, on how that looked for you? Absolutely. And and I think I think finding a mentor 
you have to make it so personal. So for me, I never sought out a mentor. I was just with people. And I think really smart, successful, kind-hearted, big brain people that you want as your mentors, I think they, they, it's kind of like they, they watch you, not just you, but they, they watch people. They watch young people. They watch to see, are you coachable? Are you giving them something to, to work with? If you ask them for advice, do you go do something with it, crash and burn, pick yourself up, learn again, come back, pivot, or are you kind of stuck? I mean, mentors to me, I think the greatest gift that you can give to a mentor is action, something to coach, as opposed to, it's great to go to them for direction. I think it's better to be like, I just did this. Let's interrogate this together. Or I'm about to make this change. Here's all the research that I've done. Here's where my mind's at. So I, to, to some extent, I think the best mentoring relationships come organically out of, I met someone and then I took that next step and I put some thought into it and I invited them out to coffee and it wasn't just to get to know them and have them talked about their career, but I've thought about some problem or something that I'm trying to figure out in my life and I've done research and how it's applicable to them and then we co-create together. When we were getting ready for this podcast, you use one of my favorite phrases, co-create. And, um, and, and so for me, it was organic. And I feel like for some people, it can be organic like that, where you might meet someone networking, invite them for coffee, invite them further into your life. It's kind of like getting a new friend, right? Almost. But for others, there are mentorship programs that put you through a process. And for me, that I don't think that process would have yielded the result for me personally. But for others, I think it's a great way to create muscle memory, right? So part of my job, as you can tell, is, is talking to people, engaging with people. If I'm locked into a room that long, I, I get lonely. So, but for others, it, it might be that process that makes it feel safe and, and secure where they are willing to be more vulnerable. I think a couple of things you said, though, that really strike me because both as an executive coach, but also someone who informally mentors some people, mm-hmm. um, Part of my drive to do that is that when someone says, this is what I want to accomplish, then the next time we touch base, they they have actually moved in that direction, right? I don't care if they succeed. They're going to come back with more information. It worked or it didn't work. It's almost like this continual testing of a hypothesis, but it's not waiting, right? Mm -hmm. Because it becomes this, why are you asking? Why are we chatting? So that is a powerful way to think about mentors and think about them as a friend in that sense that you're, mm-hmm. you wouldn't waste your friend's time, hopefully. Right. So I, I do think mentors are all around us if we look and, but you do have to take that step that you said, and you have to take the initiative and seek out that relationship mm-hmm. unless it's a formal mentoring program, which mm-hmm. might be an easier door to walk through for some folks, which I'm really glad it's there. Right. So if you don't have a mentor and you want a mentor, that might be a great place to start. And then throughout that process, you kind of learn how, how even to use a mentor and how a mentor is different from a friend and different from a partner and, and, and how that works. So 100% agreed. Yeah, I love it. So let's talk a little bit about your rise as a business leader um, and the different 
So I'm just reflecting back on your, you know, your big medical industry being in that and some other of your internship pieces. What did you learn either just going through your path on that or from being coached through different situations, mentored through different situations about how to navigate people? Because as you said, talking to people and making them comfortable and and helping them is your work. Mm -hmm. So that means you're working with all kinds of different people and Honestly, people, as people, we don't always show up as our best selves all the time at work. So mm-hmm. what are some of the things you've learned that have made that a successful path for you? Well, I think uh, in, in many cases, I have my mom to thank for a lot of my ability to navigate through personal relationships and professional relationships, uh, even you know new strategic partnerships that we work for and work with. Here, here at Analytically, at a very young age, she helped me become very aware. So I remember having conversations when I was eight about, hey, recognize when you said this to this person, how did that make them feel? Or you showed up like this with this friend, and then while this friend was sitting there, you said this to this friend. So she made me very conscious of how my facial expression, you know, how my action is. So really interrogating what's the intent and how are you showing up? For congruency? Is that what her thing was like? Are you being truly who you are? Or what was her purpose in helping you be clear in that way, Jana? Do you know? An awareness of it. So I think, you know, just in early childhood, as you make this transition to preteen and teen and high school and on and on, I think for her, she was just very, my mom is like a campfire. Everyone kind of gathers around and once, and she's just so personable and, and, and can know you so quickly. And I don't think... I think to some degree I'm like that, but I also think I'm very, well, and I'm very analytical as well, uh, hence, hence my daily work. So I'm, I think that really shaped understanding people. And then, I, and then I would say, so when I joined healthcare organization at 21 years old, um, when I was working on teams or meeting with customers, I, I was definitely the youngest person in the room. And uh, in many cases, the, the, the gender balance wasn't as, as balanced. And so I had to learn really early on when I'm talking to a guy that's my dad's age, what do you talk to him about? So how do you relate? So that was the thing I would always ask about their kids because their kids were my age and we'd be into the same stuff. So I think to some degree, like a very tactical thing would be find common ground and almost call the game. Like, Hey, you don't have to pretend that I'm 21, you know, or that I'm not 21. Like I know I'm young. So what are your kids into? Cause they're into what I am too. So the common ground piece is really powerful to know that. Um, but then when you think about walking in daily and it sounds like the company you've built is reflects kind of your own values and approach to working and appreciating people. Is that a fair assumption? I check myself at the door every single day when I walk in because I know that what, what we do here impacts the tiny humans at everyone's homes, right? So I always think about the, the, I call it the kid effect. So 
I could have an effect on a parent. They could have an effect on a kid. So how are you going to talk to, you know, little Robbie and Harrison and, you know, what type of impact do you want to have on them? So I totally agree with what you said. So when you walk into your office, you're thinking about that with your coworkers or whoever you come Mm -hmm. in contact that day. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's such a great way to frame it. I kind of, my corollary to that is that I try to think about in John Muir terms, like when you go hiking, leave no trace. Well, I don't want to leave a trace of emotional scarring on you just because I I might be in a bad mood and I don't want to walk in and say something that you're thinking, it throws you off your game, it hurts you as my Mm -hmm. friend, colleague, whatever. So, but I like that, you know, you're really thinking, Dan, what's the impact you would have on somebody's kids because of that? Right. You know, I think it's a, it's a ricochet effect. And, and we've created this, this culture here where, you know, if I look at you like this and the folks can't see, but if I look at you, she's like this, and she looks probably scowling, as mean as she's you know, capable of. We, we've, we've created this culture where someone can say, Hey, you're like, are you mad at me? Like your, your face, you're scowling right now. And the, Oh no, no, no. I'm just thinking about this problem or, Hey man, you sprinted to the coffee pot and didn't even like acknowledge existence in the office. Like what's going on there. So I think it's, it's being really aware of your actions, checking, you know, checking yourself at the door and then radical candor, you know, radical candor, like, Hey, what's going on here? What's, you know, Bad morning. <laughs> but radical candor. Talk more about how that transpires, because I've seen people say, well, I'm just being honest when what they're doing is they're just being mean. Sure. So diff- Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. yes. And, and man, I think that what we've done at work to some extent is we've made the words, I'm sorry, not appropriate. Or, or that we have to be perfect in our delivery and our communication a hundred percent of the time. Sarah, probably twice a week, at least I have to pull someone back in after meeting be like, Oh, Hey, when I said that, that's not what I meant. And Hey, I'm sorry if that had an impact on you or Hey, can, can we reconvene on that? Can we try this conversation again? So I, I always want to create a culture and a place where people can come and be their best selves and, and learn, right? So be on the line of radical candor versus being honest and mean, right? And if you accidentally step over, my grandpa always said, uh, I, I'm, I'm a nice person because I mean accidentally too much, <laughs> right? So, so let's create a culture where you can pull someone back and say, I was jerk Jana in that meeting. So sorry. Will you forgive me? Yeah, just being human. Why? Why? I mean, let's let's sit in our cars and intend to bring our best self to work, and that changes every single day. And when our best self shows up differently than what we really hope and what we really intend, then let's be to your point, human, and have a human conversation. And it's not, and I want to acknowledge it's not easy sometimes to do that because it is, you're letting your guard down. You're and and um, and uh, those that know me really really well know that I let I I let people really 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 far in, but then I have a guard up, 
And I would say over the last couple of years, I've really worked to let that final guard down more and more and be more vulnerable and honest and straightforward and sharing. And you're right, it can be painful, but it's it's so rewarding, Sarah. It's, it's so rewarding. Yes, it's so yeah, freeing is the perfect word. Is that something you see unique to women, to women leaders? Are you seeing it across the board? I'm curious where you're seeing that in your work. Man, I think uh, it's funny when you, when you, I think we as a society, as human beings have, it's funny, I was thinking about this morning, I was at a workout class. I think we almost have this facade and part of it's due to social media and the way that we communicate. And I was thinking to myself at a workout class today and we're on these rowing machines and we're like just dying. I mean, like heart rates are up and uh, no one should row that much in the morning unless you're on a beautiful piece of water. Right. And, and I looked to my right and to my left and the people on my right and my left when we were done, just got up and walked off. And I just thought, isn't that funny that we don't even look at each other and say, hey, good job. Hey, way to go. Because I actually kind of turned to them to kind of say, hey, and they were just gone. And I thought to my and I thought to myself, I wonder what they're like on social media. I wonder how engaging they are on in text. You know, so I, I think it's less about men and women. And I think it's more about human beings and really the fight to be intimate. Like, I think we actually have to fight to be intimate. So I, who knew with our podcast that we'd talk about a rowing workout, but maybe it's just scarred me that much too, that I can't cleanse it from my mind from this morning. Well, I told you that sometimes I go left when we think we're going to go right, just because something you said intrigues me. And I know that it's relevant. You know, how we interact with people really matters. Mm -hmm. And that that continual looking at taking the guard down a little bit. And mm -hmm. I can relate to you, the whole thing about I'll let people in. I can be really close with a handful of people and I will let more and more people in. But once there's been a problem, it's really hard to get back in, right? Because my trust awareness gets impacted. Right, right. So that whole, but when you were talk, describing about coming in and saying the Jana that showed up in the meeting today wasn't the Jana I wanted in the meeting, sorry, mm -hmm. or whatever, those kinds of behaviors go a long way to reinstating trust. Um, mm -hmm. Recognizing that you don't get a free pass just because you tell someone you're sorry if it's not followed up by a behavior shift as well. Oh, exactly. And I asked them to call me on it. And, and, and we, we just have to do that for one another. We have to. Well, and so you can, the more you do it, the more you can start laughing and going, oh, yeah, dang it, I've been working on that. And I still, yeah. it's like, you don't have to take everything so serious. Right. And when you want to make a change, it's so funny that you bring that up. When you want to make a change, it's so easy to think, I want to make this change. So I've, I've made this change. But it's a process. It our minds work like habits and it, it, it doesn't happen overnight. <laughs> it doesn't as much as we want it to, it just doesn't. And I, I frequently say, can I have a do over? Can we just go back two hours? Can we just have a do over? Yeah. Give me a mulligan. Give me a mulligan. I love it. Oh, that's perfect with the open being played in Ireland right now. 
Yeah, there you go. I'm not there sure when go. that'll be long over by the time this airs, but I want to do that. So what have you learned as a female CEO or leader that contributes to your continued success? And now what we've talked about gender, it may not just be gender-based, but I do think that there are some things we learn as female leaders that may be a little different. So I'm wondering how you apply what you've learned over the last decade to ongoing success and growth for yourself and for your companies, both of them. Yeah. So I think uh, the, the thing that comes to mind first is, is not so much uh, what I learned, but what was taught to me based on, I mean, look, I, um, I have a, a male business partner. I have uh, mostly male investors. I have a lot of male mentors and I feel very fortunate because I have to remind myself I'm a female and they're male. So, so I'm surrounded by people that, that see me as the person that I am, the leader that, that, that I am, that I see them as the people that they are and the leader that they, they are as well. Um, so especially when I get asked about, you know, what's it like to be a woman in business? I mean, of course, I have a, a laundry list of funny stories and anecdotes and uh, one-time events where that, that really, for me, haven't had as much of an impact on just the steady consistency of the people that I get to work with. So I, I, I think when it comes to talent acquisition, especially, it's, it's guided my it's guided my, my practices in acquiring a, ta- a talent as finding the right person for the role. And, and as I, and, and again, uh, analytically, it was my first time kind of building and growing a team. And so I wondered, it, I was like, well, if I'm not intentional about diversity, you know, well, what's going to happen here? And I just stayed, I felt really strongly and I stayed really committed to seeking and finding the right person for the role. And what's come out of that is this beautifully diverse group of human beings that work well together. So uh, that's that's the number one thing that I've learned. I, I mean, again, when it comes to negotiating your value, when it comes to earning a seat at the table, when it comes to leading teams or working with colleagues, I'm, I'm so appreciative of the conversation that's going on to really support females that, 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 that need that support and desire that support. But I also don't think it's just females. I think it can be a, a gender neutral conversation. Yeah, I've seen it in some of the folks I've worked with too. It's, it isn't just females. Um, I think it's more uncomfortable often for females, but not sure. always. Yep, I um, uh, I've, I've got a, a great group of girlfriends, and uh, we're all in different stages of our life and our careers, and uh, and you kind of have that friend that you go and you call for certain things. I'm the I'm I'm searching for a new job, and we're negotiating a comp package, or I've been at my current job, and I need to negotiate some some new terms. I'm that friend, so <laughs> which is go to. Yeah, which is which is really really fun because I mean, uh, anytime you're you're talking about you know your financial value or just your value to the organization, you need to be reminded by someone that means a lot to you of just how how worth it you are. 
I could not agree more. And it's hard for us to see that in ourselves sometimes, the external, not even just validation, but the objectivity sometimes really Mm -hmm. makes a difference. Mm -hmm. So Jan, I've wanted to ask you two things, which the first is, would you come back and do another conversation with us in the future? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you and I, I think the first time that we that we connected, I think we had 30 minutes planned and we just kept rolling and rolling and rolling. You're so you're so easy to talk to and the work that you do is is so very important to leaders everywhere. That was my second question for you is I want you to talk a little bit as this is a teaser because this is what I really want to do a bigger conversation with you about the missing opportunity in looking at how we think about HR data. And so Mm -hmm. people say there's only five on my team. I don't have HR data. I would say you have HR data. You may not have it together, but just a little bit about how your work can help people shape how they think about the data that their everyday data and what's included in HR data and the impact of it, because you had some pretty astounding figures about, loss of engagement, loss of employee, hire, all those th- kinds of things. Oh, 100%. So HR data, my, my strongly held belief is organizations aren't siloed. So why should your data be? And so when it comes to HR data, I think HR data is so important when it's coupled with another source. So when I think about not-for-profits, so much of what not-for-profits are, are doing goes back to a funding source. So how much time, effort, and energy and dollars and, and you know, the labor that we have uh, on board are we spending per customer? And are we seeing trends in people getting higher performance reviews or lower performance reviews? Are we seeing trends in people turning over on specific customers? It really lets you kind of interrogate and monitor how well is this ecosystem of customer, funder, and employee really working? And in some of our more operationally intensive work in manufacturing and distribution, you can easily spot areas of disengagement based on how uh, productivity is going down. So uh, when it comes to HR data, I strongly believe that it's just part of the equation, that it really needs to be coupled up with what are the results of the people, like what what are people doing in your organization and, and what's driving that change? So I think that's where I would want to take our next conversation is being able to use that almost as a, I would say almost as a way to dig in deeper to where not necessarily only productivity, like for more, for less kinds of things or economies of scale, but also where if you were to have a conversation, say there was a group of people who you saw a shift, not a positive shift in trend, trending that's not positive, to have a, be able to have a conversation and actually look at the organization to say, what are we doing that's not working? Not even people-based, but what are we doing as an organization? Because like you're saying, if you have your HR data that points out something's up in this area, could we have a deeper conversation about what that means, how we're governing or how we're doing different pieces? Right. What your policies are, what benefits are in place, right? So, so what are the, so people go to work and they go to work in organizations. And when something doesn't work, it's either the organization that's broken or the, the people relationship that's broken. 
So, and your data tells you that. Your data tells you that. So that's what I want you to talk about next time is we'll actually look at how data can tell you about whether there's a block with people or a block with the organization and maybe what to do about it. Sounds great, Sarah. Sounds great. I look forward to it already. I know. I'm excited. I know. I want to take notes on that right now, but I'm not going to. (laughs) I want to say thank you so much. I know our listeners will enjoy learning more about you in the future and I will. And I'm so grateful for this time together and getting to know more about you even after our previous conversation. Absolutely, Sarah. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for this week's edition of the No Labels, No Limits podcast. We hope you liked what you heard. And if you did, we ask that you go over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. If you know someone who would enjoy this podcast, please be sure to share. And until next time, have a great week living a no labels, no limits, and no excuses life.